0: Welcome to Tiski Sour. I'm very excited this evening because it has been a while since I've had Aaron Bastani as my co-host. I was sick for a while. Then he was in Canada doing a TED Talk. Aaron, I want to hear about your trip.
1: Thanks for saying you missed me, Michael. I missed you too. Of course I missed you. The trip was great. Oh, thank you. The trip was great. Obviously, a paid trip abroad is always nice. But um, yeah, I was giving a TED Talk. And at the same event was uh, Elon Musk on the final day. And that was the morning he made the bid on Twitter. And it was quite surreal watching him. And I was in the room. I didn't really tweet about it much because I, I didn't want to look like a hanger-on, which is what I am in reality. And obviously Bill Gates was there talking about how to avoid the next pandemic. And what was super strange, I mean, God, privately, Mike, we've got so much to talk about with this stuff. So many takeaways for, for, for Navarra, politically, personally. But what was really interesting was outside the event hall, Vancouver Conference Centre, beautiful, right by the water, looking at mountains. You had sort of like two, three hundred Canadians saying, kill Bill Gates, hang Bill Gates with their signs and, you know, these, these trucker mm. people. And then you've got Bill Gates inside. And it wasn't interesting. And my and my wife was like, oh God, these people are terrible. I was sort of joking with them and like taking pictures of them and going, these people are fucking crazy. You know, take Bill Gates' computer out of my brain. I don't want it. all this stuff. They were, you know, extraordinarily interesting, but I thought this is, politics is everywhere now, you know, that there wasn't political content in TED conferences 10 years ago like there is today. And there also wasn't the sort of political counter pressure. And one thing really stuck with me was Bill Gates saying, all these people think that I'm putting tracking devices in their brains. Why would I want to know where you are at 2am in Wisconsin? And it's kind of an interesting point, but yes, very, very eye-opening for me as a Brit certainly observing the, the progressive wing of the North American establishment, which is what that is. Al Gore was there too, for instance. Very different to Britain, very different intellectual culture. And of course, I think over there, far higher stakes. Uh, but it, it really highlighted how small-minded the British establishment is in many ways.
0: We should clarify, the paid trip was paid for by TED, not by the Bar and meet. We don't put up people in, in nearly as nice hotels as that. Don't worry, that's not where, you, that's not where your donations are going. Tell us very briefly though, I assume it's going to appear on YouTube soon. What were you talking about? What was your thesis?
1: I was talking about universal basic services, how we can only leverage technology revolution and address climate change, inequality, demographic aging, all these crises if we channel technological innovation to universal basic services, services which are free, paid for through progressive taxation, universally available. I argued for housing, education, transport, and healthcare after the speech. A woman comes up to me, says, she lists the four off. She says, I love it. She was Monica Lewinsky. Strange world.
0: Okay, yeah, I do want to hear more about this. We have
1: a lot to talk about tonight.
0: We're going to talk about Boris Johnson, his woes continue, Earth Day, Le Pen, and a video you might have seen on social media yesterday of an estate agent sort of kicking and swinging a sandwich board at someone. I talked to someone who was there. So do definitely make sure you stay tuned for that. As ever, we want to know your comments or questions. Tweet them on the hashtag Tisky or put them in the comments below this video. The walls appear to be closing in on Boris Johnson. That's because the Tories have failed to block an investigation into the Prime Minister by a Commons Select Committee. The motion put forward by Labour was set to be opposed by the whips, but once it became clear there would be an enormous rebellion by Tory backbenchers, a plan was dropped, the Committee on Privileges is now tasked with deciding whether Boris Johnson intentionally misled Parliament over Partygate. And in the debate, a number of Tories called for him to go. This was William Wragge.
2: The Ukraine situation is of huge
0: importance, but the invasion
2: of a sovereign nation by a dictatorial aggressor should not be a reason why we should accept lower standards ourselves. <laughs> I have told the Prime Minister to his face that I think he's doing a good job robustly supporting the Ukrainian government and Her Majesty's government, along with our nation, can be proud of their role and generosity. Let us give credit where credit is due. (laughs) However, much as though I may have tried, I cannot reconcile myself to the Prime Minister's continued leadership of our country and the Conservative Party.
0: RAG had turned against Boris Johnson a while ago, as had Tobias Elwood and Anthony Magnall, both of whom also called for him to resign, for Boris Johnson to resign. Steve Baker was more of a surprise, though. He had backed the Prime Minister just on Tuesday, but on Thursday, he said this.
2: I'm afraid I'm now in a position where I have to acknowledge that if the Prime Minister occupied any other office of senior responsibility... If he was a Secretary of State, if he was a Minister of State, a Parliamentary Undersecretary, a Permanent Secretary, a Director General, if he was a Chief Executive of a private company or a Board Director, he would be long gone. The reason that he is not long gone is because removing a sitting Prime Minister is an extremely grave matter, and goodness knows people will know I've had something to do with that too. It's an extremely grave matter, an extremely big decision, and it tends to untether history, and all of us All of us should approach such things with reverence and awe and an awareness of the difficulty of doing it and the potential consequences. And that's why I've been tempted to forgive. But I have to say now, the possibility of that really, for me, has gone. I have to say, I'm sorry, that for not obeying the letter and the spirit, and I think we have heard that the Prime Minister did know what the letter was, the Prime Minister now should be long gone. Yeah. Madam Deputy Speaker, I'll certainly vote for this motion, but really the Prime Minister should just know the gig's well up.
0: The change in tone since Tuesday was in large part put down to Boris Johnson's initial opposition to an investigation. This was Sir Geoffrey Clifton Brown's answer when asked if Boris Johnson was in as strong a position yesterday as he was at the start of the week.
2: No, I think patently that's not the case. Why? Um, I think the dial uh, has shifted today, partly as a result of the way this whole matter has been handled. Also, partly, I think that more colleagues have been able to get back to their constituencies and get onto the doorsteps and hearing what people are saying on the doorsteps.
0: While all this has been going on, Boris Johnson has been in India on a trade trip, but he couldn't escape the controversy. Channel 4's Gary Gibbon asked him this. If it turned out...
2: That the office you preside over, the building you preside over, attracted more fixed penalty notices than any other location or event in the history of lockdown. Might that be a cause for resignation? Well, you know, you, you're asking me to, to, uh, to comment on uh, stuff I don't know about, well, uh, and that, that is still I can tell you. Because I think it already not... has broken that record well I, you know, I've been looking uh, around and the most I can find is a student yeah. party that okay. got twenty eight right. there are fifty in the building okay. you preside over okay. that well, must tell us something must well, not it fifty and growing yeah uh, I will be able to say a lot more about all that type of question once the investigation is complete and um you'll be able to judge for yourself uh a, a lot more about uh, my own role so that that I think is um you know, it's a it's a fair it's a fair question, but you've just got to wait for the thing to end. You In didn't the meantime, want this inquiry to happen. In the meantime, the privileges investigation. You didn't want it to happen. That's no, what your yeah, MPs no, were worried about, no. and they see that as symptomatic of the guy who no. doesn't want no. too much scrutiny. Look, what I don't want is that was I, 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 what I don't want is that for this thing to become uh, just go on and on and on. Uh, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I think we've I'm had one
3: sure.
2: inquiry. <laughs> we've had one inquiry. Uh, we've had a police it's inquiry. A very serious matter. And, and, you know, I think that there's got to be a way of, uh, of, of drawing
0: a line on it. Johnson seemed confident that he wasn't going anywhere, though. This exchange took place at a press conference a little later.
1: You said there'll be a free trade agreement uh, with India by Diwali. But considering the number of party investigations uh, going on back home, are you absolutely sure you'll still be Prime Minister then?
0: Um, Okay, Uh, the second answer is yes. Diwali, if you don't know, is in October this year, so he thinks he's going to be in post until then. However, the scandal doesn't look like it will be fading away soon. ITV's deputy political editor posted this on social media. I should have said Asfana, apologies. Breaking hearing that police fines are landing into people's inboxes relating to the garden event on May the 20th, 2020, the Bring Your Own Beer event, that Boris Johnson did go to. Met police say they won't update until end of election period. She goes on, Sources tell me some number 10 officials have received emails. Aaron, it is all getting a little bit farcical, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it is, Mike. I mean, look, we said this this late last year and early this year, that nobody was going to push Johnson before May. I mean, that was our sort of intuition on this because it it serves nobody's interest. And obviously the May elections serve as a decent barometer of popular sentiment. And it's good to to get these events through into popular consciousness and allow them to land on Johnson. Nobody wants to be the, the, the leader of the Tory party, the prime minister with ongoing criminal cases and there's still being a story. They would like him to absorb all of the political downside. So... That's where we stood on it. And I think we thought if there was going to be a change of the guard or from within the Conservative Party by Tory MPs, it would come after May. And I, I think this, this seems to be that. There now seems to be jostling. There's clearly going to be very bad results in May. We don't know how bad. I mean, we saw polling recently, I think, what, maybe a week, two weeks ago, showing the Tories down 800 councillors, Labour up 800 councillors. I don't believe that for a second because I think the Lib Dems will do very well. How the Tories do, I think is pretty clear. They do very badly. The question is, where does that fall nationally? I think the Greens do really well for them. I think the Lib Dems will do very well. And I think the Labour will do quite well. But what we know for sure is the Tories will do quite badly. And and that seems entirely because of Boris Johnson. National polling, which puts Labour consistently now four, five, six points ahead, is not because of Labour. And I'm not going to, you know, win any friends in the chat and they say, Aaron's still, you know, kicking up a stink about Keir Starmer. No, the fact is that Tory voters from 2019, Tory voters from 2020 are now saying they'll stay at home. Uh, and that's the evidence we've seen from by-elections so far. And if you're a Tory backbencher or you're in the cabinet and you're thinking about keeping your seat or forming a government after 2024, that's front and centre in your thinking right now. Of course, the question is, who replaces him? You know, the, the, the political wonks, the boffins, the, the anoraks offer really interesting answers like Ben Wallace, the defence secretary. I think he's an interesting proposal. Uh, he's not widely known, but he's one of those rarities in politics. He's He's got net plus popularity in New Gov. Penny Mordaunt, similar, slightly better known again. She, she's not disliked to the extent that somebody like Pretty Patel is. Uh, a month, two months ago, Rishi Sunak would have been really high up in the running. He's kind of been tanked. You can't write him out entirely because he's still less disliked than the likes of Keir Samer and Boris Johnson. But the key problem for the Tories is the, the absence of a replacement. When Theresa May was being attacked from all sides in, in uh, 2018, 2019, that was done with the knowledge that you had a range of people who could replace her. If you were a One Nation Tory, Jeremy Hunt, or you know Rory Stewart, if you're a hard Brexiteer, Boris Johnson, that's not the case now. So yes, I think it's fair to say he is a, a dead man walking when it comes to his premiership, but he, he may last a bit longer than we're thinking. And it may take a while for people to get their horses in position, because while the temporality of social media is instant, this is happening now, this is a scandal, chaos, collapsing, in real life, these things take a little longer. So he he may last till the autumn. I don't think he will, but he may. I mean, it's very, very possible. Will he last until the next election? I think that's a big question. And would he last long beyond that? I think then we get into real skepticism.
0: But everyone's sort of saying the odds now for who's going to be the next leader, because obviously when we talked about this before, as you said, we said we don't think Boris Johnson will go for a while because there's still a lot more pain for him to absorb. But I mean, I at least was assuming that it was going to be Rishi Sunak that was going to replace him and he was just choosing his perfect moment. Now he's gone. As you say, there's no obvious front runner. And I think what's potentially been under discussed is like, how will Tory MPs vote? Are they going to vote for someone who they think is most likely to win the next general election? Or are they going to vote for someone who is most aligned to their kind of banging politics where you, you, know, you want to make Brexit even harder than it is? I mean, I suppose there's, there's no COVID restrictions to end anymore, but you know, one can think of, of multiple obsessions that people on the Tory benches have. Do you think we're going to get an even more ideological leader than, than Boris Johnson when he goes?
1: It's a really good question. You know, until 2015, the Tories hadn't won a majority since 1992. So there was this feeling that historical conservatism was incapable of winning a majority because, of course, Scotland has been lost to both quote-unquote English parties, Labour and the Tories, but also they, this view they'd lost a lot of the middle class, basically, to Labour and the Lib Dems over the, over the 1990s and over the 2000s. You look at the 2010 general election, for instance, after which David Cameron becomes the Prime Minister, you still have an extraordinary number of people vote for the Lib Dems and for, and for Labour. And so that coalition that they had, you know, working class Tories, particularly in the South, sort of aspirational middle classes, etc., that really powered them to majority after majority in the 80s and 1992, had seemingly evaporated. Of course, Cameron then wins a small majority in 2015. Fine. We then get a hung parliament again in 2017. So it's still an open question. Then, of course, in 2019, they get this stunning majority off the back of of Brexit. And whatever anybody says, that was the issue. That's why all the media outlets called it the Brexit election. And Labour were on the wrong side of a national polarizing national issue. Now, the question is beyond Brexit, can they replicate that? Well, in 2000, it seemed to be the case with local election results, with the Hartlepool by-election, for instance, last year. COVID has been going on for so long, you know, it's all sort of smushed together as a timeline. It seemed that leveling up social conservatism and an appeal to former Labour heartlands could provide the basis for a similar majority the next time around. Clearly, the only Tory politician capable of doing that was Boris Johnson. And again, I think that's something else now for Tory MPs who are trying to undertake a political decapitation of Boris Johnson. is Who, who else can do that? They can, they can point to Pretty Patel or whatever, but none of them have the quote-unquote star quality of Boris Johnson. You know, Michael Heseltine was talking about this, I think, on GB News. There's not many things I agree with. Michael, Michael Heseltine, Michael Portillo, rather, was talking about this on GB News. Very rarely I'd agree with him. He said, look, Boris Johnson has won a lot of elections. He won twice as the candidate um, for for the London mayor. It's a Labour city. He won the Tory leadership at a canter, and he won the 2019 general election. The following years, he's done very well in local elections. Of course, this may may be different. But the idea that he's some sort of political failure right now is is a stretch. Of course, why this is all happening is because it appears his luck is about to run out in the May elections and the moves and the. The positioning we're seeing at the moment is in preparation for the post-May context.
0: I'm looking forward to the post-May context. That's when we'll be we'll be able to talk about some more election results, the local elections. Probably not as dramatic as last time around when Keir Starmer looked like he was going to have to resign and then he tried to get rid of Angela Rayner. That was all very dramatic. I, I imagine it's going to be a better day for Labour this time around. Let's go to our next story. Today is Earth Day. Earth Day has been held on the 22nd of April every year since 1970, when a wave of protests took place in the wake of a California oil spill. In 1990, the movement went global, with the group claiming 200 million people were involved in 141 countries. Now, it's probably safe to say Earth Day has become a mixture of genuine protest and corporate virtue signaling. But even on that not especially demanding front, Business Secretary Kwasi Kwarteng didn't meet the moment. He tweeted this, I welcome BP's plan to develop the Murloc Field in the North Sea. The transition to cheap, clean power can't happen overnight. We'll need oil and gas for decades. That's a matter of fact. I'd much rather we source more of our gas domestically. Earlier, I spoke to Dr. Ella Gilbert, an Antarctic climate scientist. I started by asking her to respond to Kwarteng.
4: Ultimately, we're only going to need to have fossil fuels in our energy mix if we do absolutely nothing to source alternatives. And it's quite a fallacy that we need to start investing in new fossil fuel technologies. In fact, the consensus of climate scientists suggests that it's actually quite the opposite. We need to start moving very rapidly away from fossil fuels, and that means completely phasing out coal. It means really quickly moving away from things like gas, not exploring in new fields, because that's completely the opposite direction to where we need to be going.
0: The argument he's obviously sort of leaning into is people recognising that their gas has got more expensive, there's a war in, in, in Ukraine, and the argument for energy independence has got a lot stronger. Do you feel like the war in Ukraine has has sort of benefited the fossil fuel industries who now have a stronger argument for saying, let's actually invest more so that we don't have to to import fossil fuels?
4: I feel like there's a bit of a tussle between, on the one hand, you have that argument where you, you have the fossil fuel industry suggesting that we should be investing in domestic gas supplies, for example. But then you also have the alternative, which is if we use this as an opportunity, a springboard to really plow our money into green technologies, to really ramp up our investment and switch our dependence from dirty gas to nice, clean alternatives like solar and wind, for which we already have all the technology and the capability and, quite crucially, the resources to do so. If we stopped using so much gas and started using way more onshore wind, offshore wind, using the ample resources that we do already have, then that would be another way of of tackling the same problem. You know, solar energy is the cheapest form of electricity. That was a conclusion come to by the International Energy Agency, which is renowned for being quite conservative. So worldwide, if we're ignoring some of the cheapest and most readily available and greenest sources of energy, then it seems like a bit of a uh, slap in the face.
0: I'm not an expert on energy or or climate change, but my understanding is solar and wind are the cheapest sort of sources of energy at the right time. So when the wind is blowing, obviously when the sun is shining, but that potentially we might need fossil fuels in smaller parts of, of the economy. So maybe as a backup fuel or maybe for certain industrial processes like making cement, I think is quite hard to sort of do via renewables. Will there still be some residual parts of the economy, say, where fossil fuels will be necessary for a while?
4: Well, I should probably say as well, I'm not an energy expert either. Um, and my understanding of that is true. I mean, renewables are intermittent in some. And that's why we need a really diverse mix of different renewables. And that's why we need to invest in battery technology, which stores energy so that you can kind of plug those gaps and fill the troughs when you have less uh, being generated from renewable sources. But I'm also not going to pretend that we can switch to 100 percent renewable overnight. That's that's not a, a realistic or feasible thing to say that we can do. But. The fact remains that investing in new oil and gas and coal fields is completely nonsensical and that we actually need to be really putting our investment money into developing those cleaner technologies that will help us in the future overcoming those intermittency problems, producing a reliable base load of energy. But also, we have to remember that there's demand measures as well. So if as long as we're consuming too much energy doing, you know, frivolous things or wasting energy and literally letting it fly out of the window, then that's going to push up our demand and going to mean that we're going to need more energy. And if we can cut the demand and make sure that any energy does come from those renewable sources um, and invest in developing those sorts of renewable sources, then that's going to be the real solution.
0: And let's talk about your area of expertise at Antarctica. We've read some I mean, really scary headlines recently about areas of Antarctica being 40 degrees warmer than they usually would be. Could, could you talk about that and how, how scared we should be about statistics like that?
4: Yeah, so we've seen two quite alarming headlines, I would say, in the last month or so. So one of them was this heat wave you spoke about where at the same time, actually, we had a heat wave in the Arctic, which is about 30 degrees above normal temperatures, and one in the Antarctic, the East Antarctic, which was about 40 degrees above average. And this was a heat wave that was kind of triggered by what we call an atmospheric river, which sound it basically is what it sounds like. So it's a really narrow band of snowfall in this case because it's so cold. It's like a river in, in the sky, essentially. And as it pushes into the continent, it's associated with really warm temperatures, in this case, extremely warm temperatures and a huge amount of snowfall. So it was associated with a kind of particularly unusual weather event. But what has been said is that it's, it could be indicative of, of things to come. The East Antarctic has until now been an extremely stable place where there haven't really been any noticeable temperature trends. The ice has been relatively stable. The natural processes are approximately in balance. But this is potentially a, a sign of of things changing from that kind of stable picture. And another headline that you might have seen was the collapse of this ice shelf called the Conga Ice Shelf, which happened actually at the same time, pretty much, as the, the heat wave was was noted. Interestingly, that is probably not related to the heat wave because that ice shelf, which is basically a platform of ice that's floating on top of the ocean at the very edge of the Antarctic ice sheet, And it collapsed completely over the course of just two weeks. We think that that had been progressively being destabilised. And this is part of the the natural cycle of the ice sheet growing and bits breaking off the edge, essentially. But again, because we thought that the East Antarctic, historically, has been so stable and hasn't changed very much, this is, again, being touted as a kind of sign of things that might come in the future.
0: And as you say, the Antarctic has up to now been considered More stable. We we hear more worrying news about the Arctic. What's your impression of how much sort of the extreme weather events we're seeing both in the Antarctic and the the Arctic are feeding into policy? Do you you think that politicians are sort of saying, "Oh, we could be reaching a tipping point. Let's get more ambitious," or is this being sort of ignored by anyone other than the people in your quite specific scientific circles?
4: It's hard to know in some ways because you you live in uh, an echo chamber to to some degree. But I do think that these sorts of extreme events are certainly making people open their eyes, wake up a little bit to the reality of this change. I think the danger with putting too much emphasis on these really specific extreme events can be that it can breed apathy in a way because people get so overwhelmed with the anxiety and the kind of the doom of of all of these terrifying events and the almost the what ifs might happen. You get paralyzed with fear in some ways. I do think that there is there is more action being taken and that is on the part of businesses, governments, individuals particularly as well. I do think that things are starting to happen, but it's just not fast enough. And Kosi Kwa tweet demonstrates how seriously they're taking this. It, they're not taking it seriously at all. If on the one hand you have... The rapid loss of Arctic sea ice. You have heat waves in the Arctic, heat waves in the Antarctic, sea level rise, extreme weather events, people losing their lives due to uh, climate related disasters. And then on the other hand, you have a government minister suggesting that we invest in new fossil fuel fields. That's completely incongruent. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't match up.
0: That was Dr. Ella Gilbert speaking to me earlier today. We'll move on. We talk a lot on this show about the problem with landlords, namely, they take around half of our wages merely for being lucky enough to own property. But we talk less about estate agents. They are, after all, just middlemen. But a video shared on Twitter this week showed how seriously some take their jobs as landlords' enforcers. Well done. Hold
3: oh, well well
5: on. Oh, what did you say? Well done. What the. F-
3: Look,
4: oh, my oh my god. god. What, oh my god. Video? what the fiddle is? F- what, f- what the f water? What the are you doing? Yeah. What what? You what? piece
5: what? of sh! Are you alright? You're not. Do not day day touch day. me. I will Would, see you. Would you hit woman? Jesus Wow, he's f himself now.
0: The man attacked in that video worked for the London Renters' Union. He had accompanied three young women to the estate agent to stand up for their rights. The tenants in question had been handed a Section 21 notice, which threatened a no-fault eviction. The landlord apparently wanted them out so they could hike the rent. But the women had disputed the Section 21 for two reasons. First, they say it only listed one of the three as tenants of the property. And secondly, they claim the house had not been properly registered as a housing of multiple occupancy or HMO. They say both things invalidate the section 21. Earlier today, I spoke to one of those tenants, Sarah Wasama.
5: About a week and a half ago, uh, the estate agents, about three of them, three men with someone they were showing around the house came over. My housemate, one was in bed. One had just got out of the shower. So we're naked in her room, like in a towel. And they, uh, basically just walked in, um, and we trying to open all the doors. Um, my housemates locked the bedroom doors because we can lock them from the inside and they were actually trying to like lockpick the bedroom doors, which is like, were really, like, freaky, like, we were kind of, like, really freaked out. I said on an email, after this happened, like, you can't just do this, this is, like, illegal, you're breaking, like, these tenancy laws, blah, blah, blah. And they basically responded, like, oh, well, we can do what we want, we can walk into the house whenever we want, that's it, really. Like, it's not very nice, we kind of felt really uncomfortable uh, with three, like, I mean, we're like pretty, like, yeah, three young, like, women. It's, like, uncomfortable when, like, three random, like, big men just walk into the house trying to get into our bedrooms while we're, like, in bed or not dressed.
0: What is the law about if they want to show someone around? Do you you have to make some sort of attempt to arrange a time which is mutually satisfactory for everyone? Or what is the deal on that?
5: Basically, I didn't know at first at all uh, until I got in touch with the London Renters' Union and one of their reps. And then, like, kind of looked into it myself. And under, like, a 1977 tenancy law that, like, basically it's called, like, the right to quiet enjoyment means that tenants can basically refuse and a landlord, estate agent, or anyone acting on their behalf entering the property without our, like, kind of, like, solid agreement. We have to say like yes you can enter the property to do this this and that and if we say no then they can't like it's like kind of like breaking that law and because of being like really like because the hand of that like section 21 notice really kind of like standoffish on emails and things we were like well no you're not coming to the house like we say stated on emails like multiple times you cannot enter the property we're not giving you kind of like we're not agreeing that you can basically
0: and could you explain what happened Outside the estate agent's office, how did that escalate to the extent where you've got one of their members of staff kind of kicking and seeming like they were going to swing a sandwich board at one of your friends?
5: So we went in basically with this letter that our uh, London Renters Union rep had like written up, uh, basically saying all the laws that they broke, what kind of like that we want to come to an agreement saying you can't just walk in, you've got to stop the harassment, you've got to send the like standoffish emails you need to start being like fair and amicable with those with the tenants. We still live there. He was having none of it. He was getting really like standoffish. The guy in the video that attacked my uh, like London Renters Union rep. He was like, oh well, these tenants need to prove that they're tenants. Get your bank statements up. Get your like legal contracts. If not, we're not speaking to you. You are just like random people. You could be anyone, just aggressive, unnecessary, like really did not want to come to like amicable agreement that like yesterday. And what really set him off, he really like switched. So we were being like this and I kind of said, well, to be honest, you're renting out an illegal property. It's not a registered HMO. I can just call the Council and get them to like basically. Uh, you can be fined if you want. If you're not going to deal with us, then I'm just going to get in touch with the council and you can take it down that kind of route with the council then. And he kind of got really aggressive, kind of like, in a sense, like questioning our intelligence. He actually said, Oh, well, what do you study? Do you study law? If not, then, uh, I don't know what you're talking about. Like. Who are you to tell me this kind of thing? And I like, I kind of said, well, like, I don't need to study law to have Googled this law. Um, I've also been on the Southwark Council website. Three or more people means that it should be registered as a HMO. We're not a family. We're like a multiple occupancy household. We like share the bathroom, the kitchen, things like that.
0: Finally, I mean, you, you seem like a renter who really knows your rights. You seem like a more empowered renter than... Well then I'm a, I'm a, I am i am do not feel as empowered as you as a renter. Could you, could you talk about the London Renters Union and sort of how you got involved what they have provided for you your relationship to them and especially you know throughout this 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 dispute with your landlord.
5: So like prior to this dispute I kind of like just been a member as like a private renter um a lot of my friends are and things that I was like I just feel kind of more comfortable having like a renters union behind me. And like kind of when this like first kicked off with the, uh, section 21 notice being like given to us, I emailed, uh, London renters union with like basically asking for help. One of their members of staff got in touch with me, uh, on email, gave me their like WhatsApp. We had a few like back and forth calls. I kind of like explained to him like what had happened. He said like, yeah, I can check it all through, but like I'm pretty sure it's like an illegal section 21 notice. So then my housemates joined London Renters' Union as well after I was saying, like, listen, they're saying they're going to help us on our behalf. So we don't have to, like, kind of, like, face these, like, really aggressive, like, estate agents that are quite standoffish anyway on emails. So they joined as well. And we've had, like, group calls, like, discussing what were happening. The London Renters' Union actually emailed and called the estate agents on our behalf before yesterday's event. To be fair, without London Renters' Union, I don't know what I would have done with this like kind of situation, me and my housemates. I didn't prior to being like this kind of like entire situation really know all like tenants' rights and things. It's only because like London Renters' Union informed me and I looked into it myself then afterwards. But yeah, like without London Renters' Union, I think the pressure, I I kind of would have like maybe backed down to the estate agent's.
1: I remember being a student and renting, and obviously after I was a student, entirely different world. you know we didn't have social media and we, we, we didn't have the kinds of institutions and networks that, that that people now have politically. we didn't have the levels of political literacy. It's fantastic. And I saw the, the tweet yesterday, which obviously got this story going. You see some people in the replies, "I bet they didn't pay their rent, you know all this nonsense. no. they knew their rights. That was it. This guy was running an unregistered HMO and they they held him accountable. That's it. And we're in such a bad place in this country that actually merely observing what should be happening and and saying this isn't happening, you're falling short of regulations and requirements, that is now a radical act, particularly in housing. So this is fantastic. And what I say to anybody under 25, under 30, or anybody, frankly, if you're renting a place which looks like it could be classified as an HMO, House of Multiple Occupancy, or it is an HMO, find out if it's registered. If it's not, you're entitled to some cash. you know. We ran a piece about this maybe six to 12 months ago, Michael, and, and, the, and the people renting got some money back, and you, and you should, because the, the grubby parasites running these businesses, and, and they're everywhere, you know? I mean, we should talk more about HMOs because homeowners don't like them, right? If you've got a house or a flat and you've got two, three kids or whatever, you don't want 20 people living in the house next to you, and the people stuffed into these houses like sardines don't want to live like that either. They want rent controls for nice big flats, right? So nobody wants these except for the parasitic landlords and the estate agents who can you know, keep charging and charging and charging and charging. They have very deleterious, negative economic, social and uh, mental health impacts, people being isolated. No way to live. These things should not exist. We need to legislate them out of existence. But until then, this kind of action, superb. We need more of it.
0: Let's go to our final story of the evening. This Sunday, France will decide its next president. The incumbent, arch-neoliberal Emmanuel Macron is up against the far-right racist Marine Le Pen. It's a rerun of the previous contest in 2017. Back then, Macron trounced Le Pen, receiving 66% to her 33% of the vote. But this year, it's set to be much closer. In head-to-head polls, at the time of the first rounds, that was two weeks ago, Macron was only beating Le Pen by 52 to 48%. That gap has widened as the second round approaches, but not by much. As it stands, Macron is on 55% to Le Pen's 45 So Macron is the favourite. But whatever happens on Sunday, it's clear the current appeal of the far right in France is unprecedented. And that's pretty terrifying because Marine Le Pen's national rally party is really, really right wing Originally called the National Front, the party was founded in 1972 by Jean-Marie Le Pen, Marine's father. Jean-Marie said things like this, tomorrow immigrants will stay with you, eat your soup and sleep with your wife, your daughter or your son. And this, I ask myself several questions. I'm not saying the gas chambers didn't exist. I haven't seen them myself. I haven't particularly studied the question, but I believe it's just a detail in the history of World War II. So really disgusting, despicable stuff. After inheriting the party in 2011, Marine tried to distance herself from the antisemitism of her father, but she hasn't been averse to racist analyses invoking World War II. In 2010, she said, I'm sorry, but some people are very fond of talking about the Second World War and about the occupation. So let's talk about occupation Because that is what is happening here. There are no tanks, no soldiers, but it is still an occupation and it weighs on people. The so-called occupiers being compared to Nazis by Marine are French Muslims who dared to pray in the street. And Le Pen has kept up her Islamophobia. If elected, she has pledged to ban women wearing headscarves anywhere in public. This is how she justified that policy in this week's presidential debate.
3: I believe in banning hijab in public areas, I cannot state this any clearer. I do believe that headscarves, hijab, is a uniform that is imposed on women by Islamists. And a lot of young women who wear it have no other way. They may not dare say it, but they are forced to wear it because they're isolated, because otherwise they would be insulted attacked, harassed, because they are being sidelined and accused of being impure. I believe that is the term. Such a situation is unacceptable in our country.
0: Marine Le Pen is, of course, very far from an expert on what Muslim women want, which is why almost none of them vote for her. And it's pretty clear that headscarf bans, rather than headscarves themselves, are what really threaten to isolate Muslim women. Le Pen has also followed her father in whipping up fear about migrants she has pledged to hold a referendum to amend the 1952 constitution so that it's no longer forbidden to discriminate in workplaces based on country of origin. In the debate with Macron, she explained what she'd be proposing people vote for.
3: And I'm calling upon the entire population to check out my website and read that text because it would include a Deporting uh, foreign criminals and felons, uh, removing birthright citizenship. French citizenship should be earned. You shouldn't get it automatically. And also maintaining national preference for French people when it comes to uh, housing, allowances. Housing, low-income housing, in particular, businesses should give French uh, workers, French recruits, priority when they're trying to recruit people.
0: You'll note those policies are not all unlike what our government endorses over here. For example, Britain can already strip people of citizenship if they're found to have broken laws. But there is still a difference between Johnson and Le Pen. He doesn't openly talk about the Great Replacement. Under Jean-Marie, the foreign-born will have no rights. Under Marine, they'll just have fewer rights. It may seem more palatable to the electorate or the media class, but it's still based on asserting racial supremacy. Yet despite these continuities between Marine and her father, she has had success in projecting herself as far from the extremes. In part, that can be blamed on the media. For example, in Britain, her run has been covered like this. Marine Le Pen passes professional cat breeding diploma, but insists it's not backup career. Then it says, dubbed cat mother, Ms. Le Pen hopes to become the first French president to bring her six cats with her to the LSA palace. You might have been able to guess that was the Telegraph. But her success has also been because her competitors have helped shift French politics even further to the right. In the first round of the presidential election, Marine Le Pen faced two rivals who ran on ethno-nationalist platforms. Eric Zemmour was so right-wing as to make her appear moderate. And the candidate of the centre-right, Valérie Pécresse, endorsed the great replacement theory, which contends that a shadow elite are colluding to replace white Europeans. But perhaps most significant of all, and why I don't envy the French this weekend, is that the normalisation of racism has often come from the government of Macron his higher education secretary, has complained that Islamo-leftism is plaguing the entire society. I am going to call for an investigation into all the currents of research on these subjects in the universities so we can distinguish proper academic research from activism and opinion. Islamo-leftism, that is really, really the language of the far right there. His government have also targeted Muslims with legislation. In 2021, a so-called anti-separatism law was passed. It was designed to target what the government call Islamist separatism. Macron said it was necessary to, quote, free Islam in France from foreign influences, unquote. It included granting greater rights to the state to police places of worship, more control over sports and cultural clubs, and greater oversight of schooling. And it also extended the headscarf ban, which already existed for public servants to private employees contracted by public bodies. However, when it comes to the normalization of Islamophobia by the French government, there is no better example than this. This is France's interior minister, Gerard Darmanin, debating Le Pen last year. Doesn't think Le Pen is racist enough. Aaron, the French have a tough choice this weekend, don't they?
1: They do, but also, I mean, look. Le Pen has been around for a long time. Her father's been around for a long time. You, you just obviously made that very clear. I think it's a great little um, explanation of what's happening. But these ideas, as well, from what's been called the New Right in France, have been percolating since the 1960s. This is a very organized, extensive political project. And some of the most influential ideologues coming out of the New Right, Alain de Benoist, uh, Guillaume Fay, The Renault Camus, I think, was the actual guy who came up with the idea of the Great Replacement. These are intellectuals driving this stuff, and that's before you get into sort of more more popular thinkers. So it it is concerning. And in a way, it's quite different to Britain, Michael, because we've not had a radical right doing that kind of intellectual heavy lifting. You, You see glimpses of it like Douglas Murray but it's it's not really a thing here. You know, the right was so transfixed with the free market agenda of Margaret Thatcher and Thatcherism all the way through, I think, to Brexit. I think that's what Brexit offers was a rupture for the conservative movement in this country. And I think now conservatives, the smart ones, I don't agree with them, but the ones who think about things are now thinking about a post-liberal conservative politics, which is what the sort of French new right has been doing since the 1960s the 1970s. So it's a really distinct political culture that they're dealing with over there. And like you say, they don't have a brilliant choice. I I should be clear here, right? I I would want everybody to vote for Macron against uh, Le Pen. But Macron and the genre of politics he's offering isn't really a response. You know, it's a a dam which has already been breached. And that's clear from Le Pen's numbers, basically, over, uh, over the last decade. And so what we see in France... I think is is quite similar to what we see in Italy after 1990, which is the the complete collapse of the political mainstream. And Macron has benefited from that too, right? You know, Macron is this guy who comes out of nowhere with this new political formation, this new party, and he becomes the president. But actually, the historic centre right has 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 fallen away. The historic centre left, the Socialist Party, Socialists, has collapsed. Got less than two percent in the first round with their candidate, the Paris mayor Anne Hidalgo. So. You're seeing the kind of collapse of mainstream politics in France. The intellectual heavy lifting done by the new right is really coming to fruition, not just with uh, Le Pen, but with other candidates too, like Pécresse, uh, Zemmour. And, And and those people make her more credible. And I think the real concern, and I think Macron will win, famous last words, I think Macron will win this weekend. But I think the real concern is is what happens to French politics after Macron? Because right now, he is filling a political vacuum. He ha- That's the nature of Macronism, is he's filled a political vacuum. And I think it's very concerning about, about who succeeds him in filling that vacuum. I should say, we should also be somewhat optimistic about the prospects of the French left, because you had uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon almost finish in the final two. I think um, Le Pen ultimately finished 1.5% points above him. You have elections, I believe, later this year. And, and the emphasis now is really on electing as many progressive socialists, radical social democrat, green legislators as possible. And if that doesn't happen, if people take their eye off the ball after a hopefully Macron victory this weekend, then it's very plausible that the French far right comes back even stronger. So the, the battle for the soul of the French nation is, is not going to be finished this time next week. It is very much still up for grabs. And and that's very much the case for the European far right. You know, the growth model of the of the late 20th century, early 21st century has gone. We are going to see a mass transformation in demographics, aging demographics, a change in ethnic and racial complexion in Europe. These are all huge sociological facts. They are happening at the same time that living standards stagnate. So you have to have a responsive politics to that. The idea that you're just going to have centrists. You know, managerial technocratic politics, it's not technocratic because they don't actually solve problems, but they call themselves technocrats. The idea that's going to be the long-term solution to this, very misplaced. And in a way, I'll finish with this. You sort of see that with Macron and what he's proposing. He's 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 saying things, and I don't support Macron, but he's saying things, rhetorically at least, which were unthinkable even five years ago. You know, he's talking more about energy self-sufficiency for France, agricultural self-sufficiency. Channeling a certain quasi social democratic politics that's also aligned with the, the, the center right and Gaulism of, you know, uh, Patrie and, and, and French national sovereignty, which kind of goes beyond, um, uh, partisan politics in France. And I, I think Mélenchon is right to try and grasp that too. But the idea that sort of neoliberal centrism is, is the, is the long-term response to this, that opens the gate for the next time.
0: Mm, and I think the thing for me that sort of, stuck out about this sudden panic about the potential for Marine Le Pen doing well now, is how short people's memories are. Because I'm sure you remember, you know, when Trump, Brexit, Corbyn, when those three things happened, everyone was talking about how weak and struggling liberalism was and talking about what is driving populism, all of these sort of difficult questions being asked about the liberal centre. Now, they obviously managed to destroy Corbyn. Brexit happened and the world didn't collapse and Trump's gone. And it just feels like everyone thought, oh, everyone in the center thought, okay, phew, emergency over. We can go back to normal. Like you saw some signs in, in the United States of Joe Biden, potentially sort of the shock of Trump had forced him into offering a policy platform that was much more ambitious than your normal Democrat historically. But now you've got log jams in Congress and that's all gone out the window. It feels like everyone has just completely forgotten that actually something is fundamentally broken in liberalism. And in most of the West, there's 45% of the population. Or, or more, who are willing to vote for something which is, well, in the case of Trump or, or Le Pen, incredibly reactionary. But in any case, it's, it's, it's a vote which is expressing a sort of really broad dissatisfaction with what is going on right now with the current status quo. And I, I just feel like, you know, there was a moment when everyone thought, this is a big deal, we have to we have to deal with this. And then everyone's like, oh, no, safe, it's back in the box. And now Marine Le Pen is like, oh, maybe, you know, maybe maybe it's out of the box again. Yeah. And it also, I mean, it, it ties in with I suppose the celebratory attitudes that we've seen when it comes to Ukraine, like people say, oh, Ukraine shows the West is back. And it's like, well, the West's response has only been united because Joe Biden happens to be in in the White House. He's the least popular president ever at this point in time. And he's probably going to be replaced, you know, if polls are to be believed by Donald Trump in two years time. So for you to be saying, oh, the West is back, you know, this is a new era of of, of purpose for liberalism. I
1: mean, it, it just, to me, seems completely myopic. Delusional, and it's gone past the point of sort of attacking it and admonishing these people as somebody from the left, because it's that's their history. They are history, and I'm not sort of being hyperbolic and saying, "Oh, the left is you know on the move," and the left is in, in a bad place in many in many countries as well. But they have big problems. What I would say, Michael, a slight correction: I think the North American establishment, the U.S. establishment specifically, I think they take the the threat of Trump very seriously, and I think they realize how close they came, and I think many of them are willing to to change the politics and the way that the country has administered quite, quite significantly, at least rhetorically. you know, People that previously hated free markets, take Francis Fukuyama. Look, we had him on downstream not long ago. And people probably think, why is Aaron Bastani a socialist a Marxist talking to Francis Fukuyama? But what was clear to me was that somebody like Francis Fukuyama comes from the neoconservative movement, thought the market was always right 10 years ago. What Trump has basically taught him is we carry on like that we're done, right? Because what that's led to is stagnating living standards, 40 million Americans on food stamps, the American dream is dead. And that that has major political downsides for us. People who like to live our lives and sell our books and be the academics and go on TV, have friends who are in politics and do well in business. You know, the the patrician, the patrician sort of center intelligentsia. They recognize that that's gone, and so they're making certain concessions. Okay, organized labor should have a little bit more of the pie. Yeah, okay, maybe natural monopolies. Maybe there should be public ownership. Yeah, there is a role for the state in innovation. So people like Fukuyama, Bill Gates, and so on are saying things that I don't agree with them. They're still well, to the right of me and you, Michael. But I think that the Trump experience has moved that sort of the, the dial on the American establishment significantly, not enough. I agree with you, not enough. I don't think they realise the scale of the problem. And it's easy to not realise it when you're living in your multi-million pound apartment and you're living in your relatively insulated political, cultural uh, community. But I think something has changed. And I think those people have learned more lessons from Trump than their sort of analogous communities in the UK have learned from Brexit, for sure. I think lots of people look at Boris Johnson, they think Corbyn's gone, Boris Johnson will go, and then we'll get like Rory Stewart or Kirstarmer and we will be like the 1990s again. I think that's more of a problem, and it's not, by the way. Blairism with zero growth is going to be a very ugly political project. I mean, I don't even know how it works. I don't even think Tony Blair knows how it works. And those people think we'll go back to the 1990s. Well, we can't go back to the 1990s because when new labor came in 1997, the average house price was 4.5 times the average salary. Now it's 9.5, 10 times the average salary. So we're not going to get growth from inflated house prices. We're not going to get cheap consumer durables because of a cheap Chinese labor market. That's gone too cheap energy's gone. So, you know, wh- where's your growth model? Financialization? We're going to uh, you know, grow the city of London again, pumping our graduates into Royal Bank of Scotland and ABN Amro and all these banks which no longer exist or are tiny compared to 2007. So, I think the American establishment's a little bit better on this than than the than the UK, but I agree with you. They they even now, Michael, it's 14 years after the global financial crisis, there isn't a structural analysis of what has happened. Look, If you have, interminably, into the future, stagnant living standards, people feeling that they're poorer than their parents, and that's the majority experience for societies, UK, US, much of Europe, other countries too, by the way, right? We talk about lost decade, plural, increasingly, lost decades. Yes, UK, yes, Italy, but also countries like Brazil, also countries like South Africa. And I, I think it's dawning on them. But I think it's probably going to take another 10 years before they say, you know what? Okay, universal basic services and a green new deal. Let's do it. I think we're probably going to have to see a lot more success coming from the far right before they get on that, on that train, sadly, because it's not in their rational self-interest to do that, or they don't perceive it to be right. They want to make lots of money, pay a little tax. They want to see permanent asset inflation for their housing and their stocks and their shares. And increasingly, they do understand the political downside, but not enough. So yes, France, I'm actually quite optimistic about France, I have to say, in the long term. I think Mélenchon, he's really surprised me. I'm not optimistic about Italy. I'm not optimistic about a lot of countries in Europe. And you're right, it's puzzling. But I think actually, like I say, I'll finish on this, what I said earlier, the worst ones of all are the British liberals. I have no idea where they get their conclusions from. They will somehow have some Blairite restoration. If they can explain it to me, great. Right now, nobody can. Aaron, it's a pleasure to have our traditional Friday evenings back. Thank you for joining me this evening. it my pleasure, Michael. It's great to be back on Tisky Sour. Where else can we have these conversations, Michael? I know.
0: In the pub, but then no one else would hear them. You know, we wouldn't get any new subscribers for that. But thanks for everyone watching the show this evening. We'll be back on Monday at 7pm. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarro Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarro Media. Go to navaramediacom support.